This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Manin, and I have the pleasure today of welcoming Professor Adam Nozek to talk about his latest book published in 2021, Molecular Capture, the Animation of Biology. Professor, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you teach philosophy, You teach the philosophy of technology as well as science and technology studies at Arizona State University. You're the founding director of ASU Center for Philosophical Technologies, as well as the editor of Techniques uh, Journal. You also serve as an assistant clinical professor at the Creighton University School of Medicine, and you are also a faculty member at the University of Warsaw in Poland. So um, before we start discussing your book and, and, and delve into its, its proper material and questions, I would like to give you some time to share with us what led you to write such a book on molecular animation. And maybe my first very genuine question would be, what is molecular animation and how does a philosopher end up being interested in such a topic? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and, and that's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because I have a lot of uh, colleagues in, 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 in philosophy and, and, uh, and sort of theoretical humanities who kind of ask very similar questions. They're like, what, what, what's going on and why, why are you interested in this thing called molecular animation? Um, I mean, molecular animation very basically is, um, it's, I, I like to think of it as time-based um, data visualization. Um, so think about, you know, uh, uh, any animation character, um, and basically replace your animation character in your favorite cartoon with a, uh, a macromolecule and, and cellular processes. Um, you know, and I mean, that's a, obviously a very simplified or a very simple definition of what molecular animation is. Um, but what really got me interested in it, I, I suppose, is, I mean, it started back in my early days when I was a graduate student. And I um, and from the get go, I was interested in, I guess, what you could be what could be called epistemic media. In other words, sort of. Uh, technologies, uh, specifically visual technologies that are really um kind of essential for knowledge production in the biomolecular um, uh, biomolecular sciences. And I think, and I think when I first came across molecular animation, when I started getting interested in, in them was when uh, I was presenting a paper <laughs> on time-based uh, molecular processes. And I think that was sort of incorporating work by Evelyn Fox Keller and Gregory Bateson and folks like that. And, um, and I remember at the time, um, my supervisor came up to me afterwards and his name is, who also wrote a fantastic book, um, which also includes some stuff on, uh, 
molecular animation, um, but he's, it's, he's more interested in graphic design and biology. His name is Philip Thirtle. Um, and he came up to me and, and said, why aren't you doing, why aren't you working on molecular animation? Have you seen what they're doing uh, out there now? And, uh, you know, and I, and I hadn't really, I mean, I, I guess I was familiar with some of the uh, imaging tools that, um, that were sort of popular at the time. And then I started really getting into them and, and, and thinking about them and, and was really sort of fascinated because, um, you know, on a very superficial level, I, I suppose they were allowing biologists to kind of feel uh, their molecular worlds. They were, uh, and I think a little, I write a little bit about this in the book, um, allowing uh, biologists to sort of give form to meaningless data. Um, and at that time, and especially when I was when I was a sort of young graduate student, I wasn't quite sure if biologists were actually taking them seriously, um, and you know how they were circulating in labs or whether they were or not, um, and if it was more uh, really just interesting, like speculative research for the philosopher of science. Uh, I mean, I, I quickly came to find out uh, that they are. Uh, very important for uh, biomedical research, but at the time I, I was just sort of fascinated in them as a sort of as a sort of object, um, and almost thought about them as kind of like um, kind of science fictions in some way. This this is an, an aspect of the book that I really appreciated is that it opened uh, my sense also of curiosity about these images, and I I ended up googling and uh, looking for so many of these videos and 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 snapshots of all these molecular an- molecular animations, and uh, I think that that really opened a very interesting world of objects and and uh, and videos, and I think that's one of the aspects of the book that I particularly appreciated as well. Is at least it introduces uh, introduces us to that uh, to that kind of media. Uh, and and I agree, it, they are fascinating. But at the same time, obviously, your book doesn't just uh, stop at this fascination, right? It starts with this fascination. And um, you actually quote uh, at the very beginning of the book, I think something you already touched, uh, touched upon a little bit while uh, simply defining molecular animation. But you quote an animator and scientist called uh, Gail McGill. McGill I, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing you right. Uh, who writes, uh, quotes, that the very same tools that were used to animate a character like Shrek or Nemo are now being applied to set in motion protein domains and uh, cellular processes, end quote. And I think what's particularly striking about this quote is that it establishes a very uncomfortable relation between fictional characters and uh, biological entities, as well as between entertainment and the realm of science. And it instantly raises whole, all sorts of questions about the scientific value of these animation, as well as about the constructing nature of any entities that are being studied by molecular biologists. So could you maybe comment on, there's a reason why you put this quote at the beginning. So could you comment maybe on how this quote helped you maybe frame some of the questions of your book and how you see these questions unfolding from it? Yeah, I think, I mean... I think that's a really, I mean, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting quote from McGill, uh, precisely because it does sort of stage the problem so well, right? This is the Hollywoodization of the molecular biosciences. Um, and, uh, what I think, what I think is really, really important, um, for, for me working, working through this, because it, I mean, I, I'll just say this, that one of the things that, that the book does is, is hopefully tries to, and maybe my editor was a little frustrated at points because, um, it was really trying, it was really me trying to work through a problem of, of how is it that we can actually think about these things as valuable to the scientific community because they are, um, and I think that is the thing that McGill is trying to suggest um, is that it's not simply, I mean, there's a very fairly simple way of thinking about why they might be valuable to sciences and that it's, you know, they're communication tools, right? They allow us to communicate, you know, scientific quote unquote facts to wider audiences. Um, and, you know, we've gotten sort of familiar with this um, in the, in the COVID era, right? How many, how many, uh, uh, 
you know, the, the, you know, the famous spiked <laughs> proteins of the, of the uh, coronavirus are all too famous now. And there's plenty of molecular animations. And in fact, the, many of the molecular animations that I um, cite in the book, I mean, I got a, a, probably a month and a half after the outbreak of, of COVID. I mean, the views shot up by over 100,000 on each of them like this, um, just because people get, became so fascinated about our ability to animate this sort of molecular world. Um, so there's a sort of straightforward answer that like, okay, look at these are, these are valuable because they're communication tools, but then you look at, um, but that's not really what McGill is suggesting here. And then if you look at the sort of work that people like, uh, Janet Iwasa are doing at, um, university of Utah, and there are a number of other molecular animators, that's not, that's not really what they're suggesting. What they're suggesting is that, and what they're doing with these animations is they, they are actually doing research with these animations, right? And then they sort of function in the laboratory setting as other technologies do, right? In the sort of post-genomic era, we got very comfortable in, in, in laboratories thinking about computer, computer screens being as, uh, as normal as microscopes. And now we can start thinking about animations and animation, the animation of proteins as being as normal as seeing, you know, uh, uh, data sets on a computer screen. Um, and so that to me was the sort of, the sort of shift that was really interesting. And one of the reasons that I started digging into this, because it was like, as you suggest, okay, so these are really fascinating objects, but at the same time, they're being taken very seriously. How could that be? Um, you know, and, and so one of the, one of the interesting things for me was to figure out again, yeah, how could this be? And so this led me to think about a sort of the history of visual culture in the sciences. Um, and, and it's a really, and it's a really complex history when you start asking questions about how important is our visualization tools to sort of, um, the history of the life sciences and how, how essential is observation and experimentation and isolating, um, isolating the material world and being actually able to see it and make knowledge claims about it. So when you start digging into that history, what you sort of realize is that, you know, visualization takes, um, is, is absolutely essential to the epistemic culture of the life sciences. And what I end up seeing in molecular animation is that it actually ends up filling in some really important gaps between um, the sort of priorities of the experimental life sciences on the one hand um, and the priorities of systems biology um, and mathematical biology on the other hand. Um, and what molecular animation is sort of poised to do and, and is able to do really well is sort of fill in these gaps where you can sort of relate parts to whole. Um, and see relationships and formulate hypotheses and get a better sense of how it is that, um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of meaningless data points, essentially mathematics could actually move. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the first part of the book is really trying to trace that history. That's, that, that's very interesting in, in terms of the, this, the question of the scientific value of such a medium um, but I, I think also an, another um, problematic point that your book touches upon is the, the, the problem of its efficiency, in a way, at filling that gap that you just mentioned. These images are almost too efficient, in a way, in, in filling this gap by providing a sense of um, a view from nowhere, in, in, in a way. Or maybe you can comment on that because you have a lot of you make a lot of comments on the movement of the camera in these, uh, or the camera, quote unquote, in these, um, in, in these animations. And uh, one, one term that, that um, comes back very often in your book is the, the term of consumption. The idea is that these images are being consumed. They're not simply being used, as you mentioned, uh, as uh, a medium uh, in the sciences, as a tool in, uh, in the lab but they're being used to be consumed. Uh, and sometimes it is ambiguous who are consuming these images. Are, are the general audience uh, consuming these images for uh, them being fascinating and beautiful and interesting? Or is it also the scientific community who's been consuming them in a different way? So I, I would like you maybe to clarify this, uh, 
this this idea that these uh, images or animation, sorry, are being consumed, and what where do you see the problem uh, in that? No, that's a re- that's a really good question because I think um, look the way, and and I like the way that you're you're, you're framing this in terms of um, the kind of view for from nowhere, um, because look the way in which these animations function or the way in which they relate, if you like, parts to whole. Um, is uh, follows the same kind of logic that if you that is pervasive in the sort of entertainment media and consumption or consumptive media culture more generally, um, and I think one of the things that that it mandates is that uh, that we see everything, that we visualize everything at all costs. Um, and all of this is made available for my use. Um, and I think, it, I mean, it doesn't look at, it doesn't take much to see um, how, how the very same logic, this very same logic is, is, is kind of at work in how it is that scientists are using these images to perceive and fill in gaps. Um, and, and it's this question of relating parts to whole where there are, are no questions, right? It becomes very ambiguous about um, what are the gaps in knowledge? What don't actually we know? And there's something very tempting and very alluring about an animated image that is after, that is able to bring um, time scales together. And on the one hand, allow us to feel our data in, in a new way. But at the same time, they it, it sort of appeals to this um, this way in which we don't really want to be um, hesitant. We don't want to pause. We don't want gaps or interstitial spaces in our knowledge. And I think in terms of consumption, what I'm interested in thinking about is how actually scientists themselves have slowly become consumers in their own way. Um, and so, I mean, we could talk about, you know, the sort of consumer economy and how, you know, uh, within a sort of, uh, uh, and, I, and I do talk about this in the book within the sort of neoliberal era of um, of media consumption, consumers are also producers. Um, and I sort of track that genealogy, but I think it's really important to see how there's a, there, like I'm saying, a sort of similar logic at work in the molecular sciences. And part of this has to do with we're using the same, we're using the same technologies, but we're also in the sciences following some of the same norms. And some of the same norms from the entertainment culture are also transferring over into the way in which we think and see, think our, think about and see our, our molecular world. And it's that convergence, that collision um, between the norms in uh, entertainment culture and the norms in scientific culture that sort of are, are generating a new episteme. In other words, a new kind of epistemic culture where it's very difficult to tear apart science from entertainment. And it's that weird convergence that I'm really interested in. And I think that molecular animation is it's that moment that allows us to see something when we kind of look back. I mean, one of the one of the things that I was I, I didn't really sort of articulate in the book, but I would have liked to is that, you know, it's that kind of moment when you look back in time, you're like, where did something change? Um, and, and molecular animation, I'm, I'm, I think about, and I try to articulate in the book as, as, as one of those really essential moments. This is quite interesting because it, it really puts in perspective, or at least it calls into question, just as you mentioned, the, the, the history of that collision between the entertainment world and, uh, and science. We tend to usually think in terms of very hermetic boxes there is the science on one side there's the general public on the other end and uh, in the middle stands maybe what we call scientific communication usually and which includes a varieties of, of, of medias and different actors that transit between the two groups but we usually tend to think of them as uh, remaining um, themselves uh, remaining uh, safeguarding their integrity. And, and I think another, so a, apart from this notion of consumption that you already um, uh, commented on, you have been referring many times already in this, during this interview uh, about 
the notion of feeling the data. And I think this is also a very strange uh, uh, thing to, to say or to, to articulate, really, because um, especially when we think about these very complex form of, of sciences that require so many technological tools, we usually tend to think that the point is to um, safeguard ourselves from any sort of emotion or feelings toward the object in order to remain objective. Uh, and it seems like molecular animation is actually doing quite the opposite, or at least tending to uh, create some sort of feeling toward these data and these molecules that are essentially invisible and not experienceable. Uh, and I think you you comment a lot in your book on the different point of view that scientific actors have on these on, on these molecular animations. Some of them are a bit more skeptical about their value. Others see them, and I'm quoting here, as useful science fictions. So could you explain maybe where the points here of contention lie in the case of the scientific value of those molecular animations? And where does the value of feeling the data maybe uh, lie for for some uh, scientists? Yeah. Um, Look, I mean, I think one of the things that's really difficult about molecular animation, and you're sort of hitting on it, is that (laughs) they kind of... Uh, they announce their artifice, <laughs> um, and it's and I think it's it's the fact that they are so, I mean, constructed and they're um, they are you know uh, these are not the kind of molecules um, that exist um, in the world. They are uh, they are fictions in this sense, and I think that this is really really difficult for um, a lot of scientists to kind of stomach. stomach you know, it's like. Um, it's 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 like admitting that science deals in fiction, and that um, and I think especially today, I mean that's a um, that's a PR nightmare to say that science is um, is fundamentally um, about construction. It's about imagination. It's about fiction, and that those facts, quote unquote, that um, are are uh, that that we want. Um, to be as reliable as possible are constructed. And I think that, um, look, I think, I think that scientists, any good working scientist who's a bench scientist um, is perfectly aware that um, the, uh, the world they're working in is a, you know, techniques or a technology for generating um, certain kinds of claims that it is incredibly artificial. Um, and I think that this isn't, I mean, this is, look at, this is part and parcel of doing science. You know, I think that there's a sort of fantasy, um, that the kind of, uh, the kind of claims that circulate are, um, are referring to the world (laughs) as if, you know, they themselves were not constructed under very, very specific conditions. Right. Um, and so I think that it's not that difficult for scientists to accept that they're working with um, artificial conditions, that the um, what it is that they're they're generating in the laboratory is very different from what's out there in the field, what's out there and quote unquote nature. Um, And so I don't think that the real rub or the real difficulty has to do with artifice per se. I think it has to do with the fact that molecular animations blur so that they're so good at blurring what is just an artifact of the instruments we're using um, and what it is we actually can say with some sort of reliability. I mean, even though that, you know, even though the, um, when, when scientists are working, when, when molecular biologists are working in the lab and these are incredibly, you know, these are, you know, they're working with technologies and their artificial conditions. It's not the same as, as being in the environment at the same time, they're working towards a kind of, kind of repeatability, a kind of reliability where they can have a sort of firm hold on the world given certain conditions. Um, and I think what, molecular animation does is to easily blend um, hypothetical things, <laughs> um, things we don't know, fantasies, with things that are 
are more or less agreed upon, even though they have been constructed under artificial conditions. And I think it's that sort of space of uncertainty or ambiguity that makes scientists really, really concerned and nervous. Um, you know, and so I think this is this is one of the things that certain certain animators have taken very seriously, and which is why some of their animations are um, paying attention to what it is we can say and what it is that what it is we can say and we seem to know uh, for as it were certain and things that are more hypothetical, you know, and they do that aesthetically, right? I mean, there's more detail in a particular animation because we um, have more. Uh, confirmation that this is actually how things seem to work. And then things are a little bit more cartoonish because um, we're not quite certain that this is what is, uh, this is how this uh, protein folds, if you like. Um, But um, we're trying it out. This is a hypothesis, right? And I think it's in that space where the hypothetical works together with what it is that we can more or less say for certain that the importance of feeling data becomes really important, right? Um, the sort of contortions that we, I mean, I think somebody like Natasha, I'll just say somebody like Natasha Myers is an anthropologist who, um, wrote a beautiful book, I think back in 2014 or 15, uh, called Rendering Life Molecular, does a lot of work on this. And she's talking more specifically about molecular modelers. And she does an amazing job to think, to do sort of an ethnography of, of their bodies and how it is that um, screens and bodies kind of go together to sort of make sense of data um, in order to sort of, uh, well, you know, stitch together things that are in some ways fundamentally meaningless. <laughs> and, um, and I think this is one of the most important things for molecular biologists is that um, there's this, this history of visualization that in the data intensive sciences, we kind of, a lot of scientists sort of forget about. And when they're, when they're trying to make claims about what it is they're doing, the appeal to visualization is particularly strong, but that's part of the history of the practice. That's part of the history of the molecular biosciences is visualization. This, what, what's really st- striking here is how the, we could think of uh, molecular animation as a new form of publication for molecular scientists in a way. And when you think about scientific publication, they're very, strict rules on how, for example, a scientific article is, is being done. And uh, you can see different categories of claims that are arranged in separate paragraphs, for example, that allows you to distinguish between the hypothetical claim, the factual claim, um, the conclusions, etc., the references. Uh, and and, and I, I mean, I, this is the way at least I'm comprehending uh, your, your remark on uh, molecular animation, kind of blending all these claims together. And uh, it becomes extremely difficult and uncomfortable to uh, to translate that into a more traditional scientific discourse that has found its codes to distinguish between claims. Am I am, am I correct? Am I understanding correctly? Yeah. No. I think I think that's absolutely right. I think that there's also this. Uh, I mean, this look. This has kind of been the work of. of science and technology studies and uh, anthropology of science and, you know, some areas in the philosophy of science um, for decades now trying to sort of, you know, look at what it is that scientists are claiming um, and what they say they're doing. And then what is it that they're actually doing behind the scenes? Right. And then there's a kind of, you know, visualizing, if you like, the invisible um, in order to see these sorts of um the the inter, intersecting and overlapping histories, right? Um, and I mean, that's one of the things this book is trying to do is trying to think about the, you know, the intersection and the overlap between a kind of a science that is so um, that is so in some sense visual, and on the other hand, its use of visualization technologies that that come from other domains, right? Um, but I think one of the things that this book is also trying to do is. Um, take seriously why it is that scientists would also have objections to what it is um, that, say, a philosopher or an anthropologist would say it is that they're doing, right? And I, I think this is one of the pushback I've actually received in this book is that 
uh, or for this book is that in the early stages, there were, there were folks basically saying that don't we already know that science and entertainment is is blurred? Don't we already know that um, you know the history of visual culture overlaps with the history of cinema? And I want to say, yeah, we do. But at the same time, there is an important way in which we have to retract the resistance to what it is. Um, the kinds of claims that scientists are making and what's the problem with admitting, for example, that we're borrowing from the entertainment industry, right? And so what actually happens if we follow that, that history out and we actually track that relationship and we see what kind of um, knowledge practices emerge from that and what kind of claims are being made? And it becomes problematic, and I think I think it's the perfect. Your remark is the perfect transition to my next question because, um, what happens when we follow that lead, right? When we don't just admit that there is a collusion between uh, entertainment and cinema and science, but we actually follow, uh, a, we ask questions about it and we try to dig a little deeper. And I think that's uh, that's where your book uh, also adds another dimension, obviously, to the discussion. Um, and and you can see all of that uh, being, uh, I would say, summarized in the title itself, Molecular Capture. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, capture has two meanings here. Uh, one which is uh, capturing just a moving image of the molecular world. Uh, and the second one refers uh, more in the line of Foucault, which you, 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 you cite uh, in your book, uh, refers to the process through which molecular world is actually made available mobilize uh, within a certain rationality of governance. Um, so, so these are two, these two meaning, I think, to me, they're, they kind of dictate the general progression of your book. And we've discussed mostly the first meaning so far, which is the first part of a uh, first great sequence of your book. And then the second one focuses on the second uh, meaning of it, uh, which tends to, I think, try to connect the capture of the molecular world uh, with uh, problems coming more from gearing toward more the biopolitical uh, questions that relate to it. And we already discussed a little bit about consumption and um, the entertainment industry, but your your book talks a little bit more about the political and economic aspect of molecular animation. Do you mind commenting on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, let me just say, say from the get-go that um, the biological sciences in some fundamental sense are always always already political. And I don't mean political simply by, uh, by uh, that they express some sort of uh, political party's views or some style of politics that's, uh, you know, in, in the lowercase p, political. Um, although that very, that, that may be the case, especially today. Um, but no, I mean, the biological sciences are um, fundamentally creating taxonomies and to take, create taxonomies of living systems and to secure, protect and maintain them um, in very specific ways. I mean, this is this is political. This is biopolitical in that sense. And I think one of the things um at least insofar as I'm concerned, is that what we need to be asking about is not whether um, biological sciences are political and have some sort of relation to political economics, is how they do and for and, and to what end. Um, and so, you know, for me, molecular the way way I treat this in the book, molecular animation. Um, is a kind of major achievement of political rationality. Um, And what I mean by that, or political rationality in the West at least, and what I mean by that is that um, biology has, in some fundamental sense, the, the, the visualization technologies in biology and the modes of perception now overlap with those in the entertainment industry. And, um, and that kind of overlapping has not been, uh, has not come all at once. And that's one of the things that I sort of trace in, in the second and third part of the book, um, is that this has been a sort of slow and steady progression that we can track through, you know, the history of liberal governance to neoliberal governance, um, to thinking about how it is biology becomes cinematized. Um, and a, a discipline or a practice that is so invested in the visual 
does borrow in these very specific ways from uh, from visual culture. I mean, we see it. Um, there's we see it early on. I mean, especially in the the late nineteenth and early twentieth century with micro cinematography and the use of um, the use of the cinematograph in order to sort of think about time-based processes and cellular processes, right? And then there was a sort of reaction that can be sort of traced. What's interesting is you can see you can see the sort of reaction of the of, of biologists in the early 20th century and late 19th century that sort of mirrors what a lot of scientists are doing today when they see molecular animations um, is that there's a sort of they, they, they think it's you know entertainment for the masses um, it's um, it's uh, there, there's no way that we could be um, mirroring the processes that are actually happening in the natural world on the screen, right? But what you actually realize when studying and looking at these um, these histories is that, um, and this is this is to you know um, my debt to to the work of Hannah Landecker actually comes out in this um, in the third part of the book is thinking about how it is that biological knowledge became temporal. Right, they became time-based in a very specific way, and sort of moved outside of the only spatial the the, the way in which uh, knowledge was spatialized um, in in that era. And it's sort of tracking this history, and also thinking about the way that there are very specific regimes of visuality. Um, that come into play when you introduce these technologies. So it's not simply that these technologies are neutral. It's not we just simply introduce a new technology and, oh, my God, we can see more. No, that our, our, our apparatuses of perception themselves are being trained. We are being uh, honed to see new things. And this also partakes in a wider sort of cultural sphere as well. And it's sort of this convergence of entertainment and uh, biological knowledge production that I'm really trying to trace, you know, throughout the second and third parts of the book, that we really do begin to see how it is that uh, the norms of scientific viewing and the norms of enter- uh, entertainment consumption, not just influence each other, but actually become one and the same. And so what we have now is a sort of new episteme or what I like to think of as a sort of biological entertainment episteme. Um, And this has everything to do with the sort of progressive commodification of perception um, where everything, including um, time-based cellular processes are viewable, are in some fundamental sense consumable, and that itself produces value. This is this is really fascinating, um, uh, especially the, your, your last remark that um, entertainment and science, in terms of their the, the kind of visual they produce, is not that they influence each other, that they become each other. As as we were talking, I, I was thinking about a very short sequence. I think in the first Spider Man movie, where um, Peter Parker just has gotten beaten by that uh, spider and and you suddenly uh, jump into a view of his genome and how the DNA is directly being altered and replaced by a sort of other sequence. And, and when I'm comparing these uh, images to the kind of uh, visualization that are, that are being done in, uh, uh, in the, the, the molecular animations that you, that you comment on there, they, they appear extremely similar, analogous, at least in terms of the aesthetic of it and the point of view that the viewer is, is taking. So I think, I mean, to me, that's, that's at least how I'm, I'm visualizing uh, this, the, what, what you're saying here. And what's particularly interesting, I think, about your book and what I really appreciated is that coming to the end of it, I had a completely different sense of what you were talking about. Because we, at first, we're very focused on the molecular animation themselves. And then we come to realize that, especially when we start talking about uh, the biopolitical aspect of it, we come to realize that we're talking essentially about the elusiveness of life uh, as both an, an object of inquiry and an object of political power, uh, of control. And, and obviously, this, the story of how humans 
And uh, Western cultures in particular have been trying to deal with this elusiveness of life uh, as an object of power or, or science uh, is quite extensive. And your book tries to at least uh, retrace some of the history that relates to molecular animation. Um, but I, I, and, and really, they allowed me to, uh, arriving really at the, at the postscript of your book, it allowed me to reread the entire book through that lens. Uh, and since, since life obviously always exceeds any solution we have at visualizing it, at framing it, and I think you already commented on that, uh, what would you say molecular animation is, is missing of life? And if I wanted to be a little bit more controversial, I would say, what do you think molecular animation is hiding from life, uh, despite its promise to deliver some sort of very immersive, uh, comprehensive view of uh, life's mechanisms? Yeah, I like this idea of hiding. Um, I think, well, I'll just, uh, l- let me say that I think um, one of one of the challenges with molecular animation is it too, it too often um, doesn't allow things to hide. Um, that one of the sort of, one of, I, I guess the sort of normative, uh, or I don't, I don't know if it might be too strong of a claims, claim, but the sort of, um, the sort of mandate within the sort of molecular visualization community to see everything, um, to see behind every corner, to visualize each and every mechanism, um, to not allow those mechanisms to hide is, is what molecular, molecular animation doesn't allow those molecular, those mechanisms to hide. It, 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 it reminds me of what Paul Virilio talks about in terms of ballistic perception, where Paul Virilio talks about the sort of the bomb's eye view of cinematic perception in the modern age, whereby um, we have to go in and immerse ourselves in absolutely everything and consume it. Um, now, so to to answer your question very, I guess very simply, what what it's hiding, <laughs> what molecular animation is hiding is life's um, elusiveness. Life itself hides. It's um, and I think that. Uh, one, I mean, it's a fascinating technology, and that's one, of, and that's what we've talked about before. Is that you know, it's it's a technology that that brings together cinema, computing, and painting, basically, um, and and I think that's fascinating. And I think that it allowed there are tons of affordances of this technology with this technology, but you know, one of the troubles, I think, is that um, this 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 tech. Uh, lures us into thinking that we can fill in every unknown um, and that we can fill in these spaces, these gaps and these interstitial, um, yeah, these interstitial spaces. And I think biology itself is incredibly susceptible to this. Um, I mean, within, you know, from, from a kind of neo-Darwinian perspective, I mean, there is this, this need to mechanize all of every living system to put it within one large causal network and to understand how um, that causal network is put together. But, and I think molecular animation in some ways offers a crucial assist there, right? I mean, it allows us, um, it allows biologists to, you know, Stitch, stitch together parts and whole. And that's exactly what neo-Darwinianism um, really wants us to do mechanically, mechanistically. Um, so I, I think we're we entering a, here a very interesting question. Which, uh, you, you, start, um, you, you start to delve in a little bit at the end of your book, which is what would, let's say, an, an ethical biological molecular animation look like what what would what would an, an a biological a molecular animation that allows both for the stitching together of of data the 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 possibility for um biology to uh, biologists to feel some of their data while at the same time uh accepting this sort of elusiveness of life. So allowing for a vision of life that is not just mechanized. Um, 
what would it look like? And I think at, at the end of your of your book, you you have a, a brief discussion of uh, Jean Pinlevé scientific cinema. Um, it was mostly an, an, an avant garde um, uh, cinematographer and artist. Uh, so so it's quite interesting that your your book starts with very modern molecular animations and then ends with some uh, images and and, uh, and uh, the kind of visualization dating back from the 1920s and up to the 1960s at least when the case on Jean Paul Levé. so so it's a, it's a it's a strange i would say temporal progression in the book <laughs> uh, so so how would you maybe comment on that what what do you see in the scientific cinema of Jean Paul Levé that maybe allows for um, perspectives, new perspectives in the in the in the field of molecular animation. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you you mentioned the sort of temporal progression because you know the way I think about it, I guess, and what the book kind of leaves you with is, in order to go forward, you need to go backward and and backward to sort of forgotten histories. Um, and it's through these sort of forgotten histories that we can understand that sort of different things could have emerged, right? What I like to think about is in terms of, I mean sort of speculative histories in the philosophy of science. Um, what would that look like? And, and for molecular animation, I think it ends up in Jean, Jean Penlevé. At least that's one option. Um, and the reason I say that is, I mean, it's it's part of actually a bigger project that I'm that I'm working on right now, but it does have to do with, um, and, I've, and I've written, I've written some, um, I've written some about this, but it has to do with the way in which, um, uh, when we think about cellular cellular systems or molecular systems and cellular systems and wider environments that influence those systems, look at we don't really know how we can stitch these things together, right? We have we have we can we can model them, um, but probability distributions don't really get the job done because actually when we're thinking about these kinds of causal causal networks, they're non-probabilistic, and I'm working with. Uh, uh, the computer scientists and turn kind of theoretical biologist Giuseppe Longo, the Italian um, biologist who works in uh, in, in Paris, um, and we're working on some of, on some of this. And I'm writing a book actually right now on his on his work and the way in which he's thinking about the um, we need different understandings of or theoretical conceptions of living systems that are non-mechanistic, but that are also non-probabilistic that move beyond sort of the complexity scientists or sciences that sort of, it's a kind of complexity beyond complexity um, because we need to be thinking about systems that generate their own conditions for the future as they unfold. Um, and what this means is that we can't actually pre-state we, we can't pre-state what uh, a biological system, where it's going to go, what its developmental trajectory and evolutionary trajectory actually is, right? We can, we can have a pretty good idea of the sort of uh, how epigenetic inheritance systems work, but we can't actually repeat those. We can't know for sure and isolate them over and over again that this is how this mechanism works. And what that does is that opens up this, this really ambiguous space where there are massive blind spots. There are things that we don't know and that there are uncomfortable, uncomfortable things. And so how do we build theories around this? And my interest is thinking about, well, look at biology has this rich history of being a visual science and that we should, and, and, and it's not simply visualization. We, we don't simply just visualize what we already know, right? The visualization itself is an epistemic practice. It's epistemic media in that sense. And, and this is, so I guess you could say my, my critique of mainstream molecular animation is that it really doesn't allow for these blind spots. It doesn't allow us to see these interstitial spaces that are absolutely, are actually so important for the most sort of progressive um, and interesting theoretical biology that's happening right now. And strangely, it's Jean Penlevé, <laughs> who is somebody who was working within a sort of, he was working on the fringes uh, of both the avant-garde and, you know, uh, you know, bio, biological visualization technologies in the early, early 20th century, because he was neither, neither really accepted, or he was, he was accepted by neither one really. And it sort of, he was doing his kind of own thing. Everyone kind of liked him, but he, uh, you know, he would never, he, he never sort of was officially a surrealist because he didn't sort of abide by their principles and so forth. And he was a, 
you know, biologists thought he was kind of strange, um, especially with all of his voiceovers and the mystery um, and, and, and the sort of, you know, he had this kind of intense, intense interest in, in the, the movement of, of biological systems. But he, and even, you know, with the sort of voiceovers, you know, he's been critiqued for uh, anthropomorphizing them. But it's, it's interesting because those anthropomorphisms are, are really important because they're not an anthropocentrism because they're always, they're always working against our sort of temptation to think that these things that he's filming are actually relatable. The, his voiceovers make it so um, that the strangeness, the mystery, the pause, the hem- hesitation, that that itself is always built in to his cinema. Um, and I think we mo- need more of that. <laughs> I think that's the kind of call that I'm, I'm making at the end of the book is that, um, and that's what we don't have. And that's what sort of goes against and works against all the sort of, um, uh, you know, the mandate that we, or that biologists have today to sort of visualize everything at all cost. This is quite, this is really, really fascinating because we could, I could summarize it maybe by saying we, we're waiting for some sort of, avant-garde cinema of molecular animation <laughs> rather than than a simply uh, then then the formula the hollywoodian formula of, of cinema that is that is being current that is currently being uh um used in molecular animation well thank you so much uh i mean you've already shared some of the uh the the, the projects you're currently working on but but i think it, to go back maybe to jean-paul levé i think you you mentioned at the end of your book that uh, it would be as a topic worthy of a of, of an entire book, uh, are are you are you currently following that lead as well? Are, are you, if 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 you would like, obviously to share to share any of that uh, of that work you may be carrying right now? Um, not, I mean, I'm not directly working on it. It's kind of on the back burner, although it does kind of inform a lot of um, indirectly a lot of the projects that I'm working on right now. Um, well, I, I should say that I'm 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 cashing out in a in a in a you know in smaller pieces and in, in a piece for an encyclopedia of animation right now. I'm thinking about Jean Pelavé as a sort of biological animator and, and this being an alternative history, um, if you like. But you know, most of the projects I'm working on right now actually are dealing with government. I mean, one project I'm dealing with or I'm, I'm working on, which is a new book on governmentality and design. So it's really taking up that postscript. Um, where I uh, try to reread um, the entire book that was just just written and turned through the lens of design um, and a sort of new architectures of perception um, through governmentality. So that's one book that I'm working on. And then I'm working on another book on um, artificial intelligence and AI ecologies, but I will be using, um, to think through that, I will be using a lot of uh, Alfred North Whitehead, who I talk um a good deal about in the sort of middle sections of the book. Um, but Penleve, I mean, look at this sort of, um, the speculative histories of, of speculative histories in the philosophy of science and what Penleve can do for, um, uh, visualization practices in the science I, sciences. I think they're incredibly important and I'm, 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 I'm slowly trying to bring, bring that out, but I do think it needs to be done slowly and carefully. Of course. Well, thank you so much, Professor, for this for this interview. This was absolutely fascinating. Um, I really appreciate your comments and your your answers to my question. Uh, thank you again so much. Well, thank you for having me.